Good to be back up here again this morning. I want to begin with a story, uh, which I entitled The Potentate and the Prostitute. There was once a great king who came upon a newborn, helpless baby girl in the street, lying all alone, wallowing in blood, forsaken and left to die. As he passed by, he saw her and he had compassion on her. And from his great, limitless, really, supply of resources, he revived her back to life. She grew up, became tall, and arrived at full adornment. And some time had passed, but he came upon her again, and she was at the age for love, and he married her. He made his vow to her. He entered into a covenant with her. She became his. He became hers. She was made queen. He clothed her with embroidered cloth and fine leather. He wrapped her in fine linen and silk. He adorned her with necklaces and put bracelets on her wrist. He gave her earrings and rings for her fingers. He put a beautiful crown on her head. Thus, she was adorned with gold and silver. She ate fine flour and honey and oil. She grew exceedingly beautiful. Her renown went forth among the nations because of her beauty. For it was through the splendor of the king that he had bestowed on her that her beauty was made perfect. But she trusted in her beauty. She played the harlot because of her renown. She lavished lavished her promiscuity on any passerby. Her beauty became theirs. She used her resources to build and decorate a home for her and her new lovers. She sold her clothing and jewelry to pay for her illicit affairs. She gave her lovers her food as well as parting gifts. She took her sons and daughters whom she had borne to the great king and killed them so that she might have the favor of her new lovers. How terrible her adulteries were. So terrible that she slaughtered her own children, burned them in the fire. She lost all sense of modesty and exposed herself in every public place. She was like a prostitute, yet somehow worse. She scorned payment. Her heart was sick. Men give gifts to prostitutes she gave gifts to all her lovers, bribing them to come to her from every side. In response to her rampant and continued adultery, the king gave her over to her lovers. She rejected his calls to return to him, to love him. So he removed his favor from her. He quit his pursuit of her. He took away her allotted portion and delivered her over to the greed of her enemies. He gave her into their hands. They burned down her house. They stripped her of her fine clothing and splendid jewels and left her naked and bare. They stoned her and cut and stabbed her with swords. She was reduced to nothing. 
She was as helpless as the day the great king had first found her. Dying. 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 Well, we need to leave our king and his estranged wife here for the moment. It's not the end of the story. But before we conclude the story... I want to invite you, if you haven't already done so, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. And we will consider, specifically, verses 14 through 23 of chapter 2, but uh, we'll sort of get a running start in chapter 1, because the words in chapter 2 don't make any sense if you don't know what happened in chapter 1. And the title of the sermon this, of the sermon this morning uh, that I've given it is "A Lord, a Marriage for the Ages." And our key words for our worshipers in training are "allure, betrothed, and mercy." And before we look at the text, a quick word about the book of Hosea. Hosea uh, himself, the prophet, we don't actually know much about. We do know his father's name uh, was Biri, and that. Hosea prophesied during the days of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. And he prophesied during the days of king Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. This time would have spanned about 50 years, from 760 B.C. to about 710. We don't know where his hometown was, what events shaped his early life, or what kind of education he had. But what One other thing that we do know about him that is particularly interesting is the manner in which he was called to the prophetic ministry. God called him to be a prophet in a most unusual way. In verse 2, chapter 1, we read, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, I'm sure we've all had bosses or kids, maybe you've had your parents ask you to do things you didn't want to do. But this is up at the top of the list of a difficult assignment. But Hosea obeys, and the woman that he marries is named Gomer. And while there's lots of questions about what exactly is going on here, it seems best in my mind just to summarize the way I understand God's command to actually play out in Hosea's life. Hosea, having been commanded to marry an immoral woman, took Gomer as his wife. After some time, in the birth of three children, she abandoned him for other lovers. Then apparently she fell into destitution. Again, at God's direction, this is recorded in chapter 3, Hosea went after her, found her, redeemed her, perhaps from slavery, and took her home. And what becomes apparent as you read chapters 1 through 3 is that Hosea is telling the story of his unfaithful wife, and the children she bore, and the lives that they led. He's telling this story to point to the bigger picture of God, of, uh, sorry, of 
is Israel's spiritual idolatry against God. This is a unique calling that God had placed upon him to live out in a peculiar way the realities of what he was proclaiming. Many of the other prophets had similar tasks in terms of physical acts that they were to do that illustrated the point of what they were preaching. This is Hosea's. And so the message of Hosea's marriage and life is that Mother Israel, as the the shrines, the sacrifices, the priests, the kings, the foundation of the nation's religious identity, had turned from God. And her children, the common people, followed their mother into superstitious activities, captivated, in this case, specifically by the promises of the local deity of the region, Baal. The mother had forsaken her husband, the children, their father. Well, what about his children? Hosea's first son is named Jezreel, which means God sows or scatters. And so, if you think about those two words, sows and scatters, the name is slightly ambiguous whether or not it's meant to be taken negatively or positively. But in verse 4 of chapter 1, we read, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And so clearly the name is meant to be taken negatively here. God is going to break Israel apart in the days to come. Lo Ruhamah, the name of the daughter whom Gomer bore next, her name means no mercy. For God says that he will no longer have mercy on Israel. She bore a third child, a boy, and he was given the name Lo-Amni, which means not my people. The names of Hosea's children cast a long shadow over Israel's situation as they represent now the broken and fractured relationship that Israel has with God because of the people's wandering away from Him over and over and over again in pursuit of other gods. You see, when God had brought Israel out of Egypt, He entered into a covenant with her. A marriage covenant. The summary statement of God's promise to the patriarchs in Genesis and to Israel in Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is this, that He would be their God and they would be His people. God brought Israel out of Egypt. He brought her to Sinai and He married her. He married her and she married Him. And they entered into a loving union and bond together. God to be God for her. And she to be a people for Him. But as the life of Israel unfolds, She utterly turns from Him. Her leaders and laity turn their hearts away from the living God to seek the help 
of others. At this point in the life of Israel, they have so given themselves over to this cultish superstitions of the people around them that they belong to Baal. Their only hope is to turn, repent, and seek the Lord. But it's almost as if they can't. The people have become so drunk with lust that they are completely blind to their sins. One commentator asks and answers an ever-important question at this point. What shall Yahweh do with a people who can neither repent nor even understand the need for it, nor recognize that Baal is a lie, nor divorce themselves from their mother and her ways? Answer, he must strip Mother Israel of all she has. And this, of course, God promises to do. He says to not my people. In chapter 2, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. On and on he goes in verses 4-13 through of chapter 2. He says, Upon her children I will have no mercy. I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her. She shall pursue her lovers, but shall not find them. I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to all her mirth. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees. The picture that God is giving us here is one of utter desolation. But why? Why does God promise? Why does He say He will do this? Is it simply because He's angry? Does He simply want to take out His wrath on His wayward bride and put an end to her life? No. God does not strip Israel bare to the end of her eternal shame and rejection. No, He brings her to nothing in her own eyes so that she might turn from her ways and turn back to her husband and give herself only and fully to Him forever. So we've arrived then at our passage this morning, verse 14 and following of chapter 2. God has been forsaken. He threatens destruction. Yet now, there's a turn. He promises mercy and a marriage. And so I... As we look at these verses, we'll unpack them under three headings. First, we will consider God's promise to pursue Israel. Then we will look at His marriage to Israel. And third, His celebration with Israel. So first, in verses 14 and 15, we read this. 
Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So remember, God at this point is estranged from Israel, divorced even, if you will. Jeremiah 3.8 says as much. And yet, the Lord here says that He, once Israel has been brought to her breaking point, that He will allure her. This word allure is a very strong word. And depending on how it's being used, can even carry the connotation of deception or seduction. But here, God is saying that He will allure Israel. He will draw her into the wilderness to speak tenderly to her. There is no malintent in God's action here. But it seems odd, doesn't it, that He would draw her out into the wilderness? Isn't the wilderness a bad place? For instance, in Job 38, 26 and 27, uh, we read that the, des- that the wilderness is a desert, a wasteland, a place where no man lives. Or Isaiah 27, 10, the fortified city stands desolate, an abandoned settlement, forsaken like a desert. There the calves graze, there they lie down, they strip its branches bare. Or Jeremiah 4.6, I looked and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before His fierce anger. Why then, we ask, if the desert is so often associated with judgment and the wilderness with misery, why does God say He will bring His forlorn bride into the wilderness. It's because the wilderness is not only representative of rejection by God, but it is also a place representative of innocence and renewal. One verse to that. Jeremiah 2.2 The Lord says, I remember your devotion of the devotion of your youth your love as a bride, how you followed me into the wilderness in a land not sown. What potential, what promise, what life. Commentator says on this point, the wilderness can represent rejection by God, but it is also the place of abandoning the world Wealth and pretense and of depending, uh, depending entirely upon God for life. It is thus the place of grace and the training ground of spirituality. So the wilderness represented for Israel both judgment and mercy. And here in this place in Hosea, in this verse, God speaks of mercy. He's already used the illustration of the wilderness as judgment, but here, it's a place of refuge and sanctuary. It is a place of renewal, a place for love. 
He could, he could demand satisfaction. He could leave her and cast her aside forever. And yet, He promises in the end to allure her, to woo her back to Himself, to speak not harshly to her, but tenderly to her. And He's going... So He will allure her with What? With what will God draw Israel out of her sin and into Himself? Well, He will do it with Himself. Back in September, we we introduced a, a new song into our singing rotation called, Hast Thou Heard Him, Seen Him, Known Him? The second verse says this, What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth. Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. There it is. If Israel was to be drawn away from her whoring after other gods and her devotion to Baal, she had to be one with a sight of her king. It was not enough for her simply to hear that what she was doing was wrong or to even know what the right thing to do was. Law would only smite her, condemn her, and kill her. What she needed was grace. What she needed was mercy. What she needed was to see her husband afresh. He will speak to her tenderly. He will draw her into the wilderness. And He will turn, He says, He will give her vineyards. And in verse 15, He will turn the valley of Achor, a place that had previously been known as a place of judgment, He will turn it into a door of hope. In the very place where He once judged Israel for her sins against Him, hope will rise. And there she will, like she did in her youth, she will run after God with wild-eyed wonder. During the day of Hosea's prophecy, Israel was a wretch in a wretched place. Consider how awful it is when the most apt metaphor we have to describe Israel's spiritual condition is a woman of the night. A prostitute. How low the people of God were. How far they had fallen. And yet God promises to win her back. And He does. And we see this foretelling of a wedding in verses 16 through 20. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. No longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things in the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, 
and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So first I want to look at what God says He's going to do and then what Israel is going to do. In 17-19, through He says He's going to do five things. He will remove the names of Baal, the names of Baal from Israel's mouth. He will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and even the things that creep and crawl on the ground. He will abolish the bow, sword, and war from the land. He will make his bride to lie down in safety. And five, he will betroth her to himself forever. So let's briefly look at each of these in turn. First, he will remove Baal's name from her mouth completely. The meaning of the word Baal uh, is really just husband or Lord. My husband, my Lord. And so it made it an easy it was easy to interject it into Israel's religious life. An Israelite could call Yahweh my Baal and justify it, saying that he simply means my Lord. But Baal was also the name of the Canaanite deity of fertility, and so the Canaanites could smuggle their cult worship into worship of Yahweh through this overlap in meaning. But God says on the day of their wedding upcoming, He will completely remove the name of Baal from their mouths. Their devotion will not be divided. It will be fixed solely, singularly on God. He says secondly, that He will make a covenant for them with the beast of the field, which is a reversal of what he says in verse 12. He says, I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field shall devour them. The estrangement between man and all of creation as a result of the fall, God says, shall be mended. All creation currently groans in the pains of childbirth, awaiting redemption. Creation wars against itself in the throes of anguish of labor. But the Lord says, there is a day of peace coming. He says, thirdly, that not only shall creation be at rest, but man's war with other men shall cease. God will abolish war and its weapons and make His bride to lie down in safety. All in all, in His wedding vows to His bride, God promises perfect peace from man and beast, from the earth below, the heavens above. From it all, she will be safe. She will be with Him. No longer shall the name of Baal be on her tongue, but she shall bear the Lord's name in purity. And lastly, he says that He will betroth her to Himself in righteousness, justice, 
steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Plead with your mother, plead, she is not my wife, I'm not her husband, but now his discard of his wife is undone. And this is no mere contract or treaty. This is a bond of love. This is what Jeremiah saw in the New Covenant. This is something that's new, unlike before. This is not something that Israel had known before. Surely and finally, she would be his. He would be hers forever. Unlike the first covenant that they broke, this one will be unbroken and unbreakable. We will return to Jeremiah's prophecy in a moment, but for now, consider with me this betrothal. Why does he say betrothal? Why does he say he will betroth her? Was she not previously his wife? Why not just say, I will receive her back? He could have said that and we would have all knew what he meant and agreed and thanked him for it. At least for one reason. God is not simply receiving back a wayward bride, but He is receiving her with the same love as if she had been a pure virgin and never abrade her with, former, with her former departure from Him. In effect, He says, You shall be as a bride, pure and spotless, and your sins shall be no more remembered but they will be passed over as if they had never been committed. My friends, brothers and sisters, when God pardons sins, He does so completely. When He removes our sins from us, He does so as far as the east is from the west. He makes an utter end of them. He forgets them altogether. They are lost to oblivion nevermore to rise against us in condemnation. This thought, however, leads us to another consideration about this marriage covenant. How can God do this? How can God without impugning his own dignity, receive her back. It says that this marriage will be founded upon a few things. Righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness. And this is a massively important question. Whose? Whose righteousness and justice is this marriage built upon? Upon whose steadfast love and mercy is this covenant founded? Whose faithfulness will preserve this union? I trust the answer to these questions is obvious to you. For it is not the righteousness of Israel. She had none. 
It was not the justice of Judah, for they knew it not. It was not Israel's love and mercy, for of these they were bereft. Surely it was not the prostitute's faithfulness. God forbid. No. It most assuredly is the Lord's faithfulness, love, and righteousness that provide the necessary conditions to sustain and to create and sustain this covenant. And this is the gospel in plain and simple terms. How is it that God can embrace Israel and receive her as a pure and spotless bride despite her many, many sins? It is because His righteousness, justice, love, mercy, faithfulness, goodness, they serve as the bedrock for this marriage union. And now the, the question arises, how will Israel respond? Will Israel answer God's drawing and rely upon His righteousness? Or will she remain obstinate in her own supposed goodness? Well, God tells us. He says, in that day, when I do these things... You will no longer call me my Baal, but my husband. And he says, you shall know the Lord. Two weeks ago, when I preached from Romans, we noted that Romans 1 says that everybody knows the Lord. Everybody knows God. So what with this? Well, it depends on what you mean by no. A good example of this is in uh, Genesis, when it says that Adam knew Eve. This is like Genesis 4. He'd known her for some time. They'd already fallen into sin, and so he obviously knew who she was. He named her, after all. And so that language, he knew her, it's speaking of of marital love. He lay with her. And now while you shall know the Lord here in Hosea 2 does not in any way whatever imply any kind of sexual intimacy between God and His people. Rather, it points to and conveys something much deeper, greater, and intimate. In chapter 2, Uh, In the same chapter, verse 13, God states that Israel had forgotten Him. But this too shall be reversed. On their wedding day, He shall no longer be the forsaken husband, but the beloved groom. The anticipation of this entire passage is that Israel would come to know the Lord. That she would come into an eternal an eternal, blissful, covenant relationship with Him. And that is what drives this whole thing. That in the end, Israel will know Yahweh. You see, God has given us the gifts of marriage and sex so that we might have a taste of what it means to be married to God as His bride, the church. 
In Sunday school, we talked about how honey tells us what wisdom is like. Honey's sweet to our taste buds. Wisdom's sweet to our souls. This is the same kind of thing. Marriage tells us what our relationship with God is like. So we individuals, we human beings here in this life, we get the faintest whispers of glory in our marriages, which are meant to cause us to long for the strongest and loudest shouts of glory in the union of Christ and His church. And so God has pursued Israel. He says He will marry her. And then in verses 21-23, through 23, He celebrates. God simply, He says this, I will answer the heavens, who in turn will answer the earth, which will answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. They shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. On this great wedding day, there shall be a harvest and a feast like never before. Here we see again a reversal of the names of Hosea's children as representative of the people of Israel. Jezreel, while earlier in 1.4 spoke of God scattering Israel in judgment, now it clearly means that God will sow and plant Israel in the land in love. He will teach and provide for His people. And He will do it for Himself. Secondly, to know mercy, he says, you shall receive mercy. And to not my people, he says, you are my people. Those who previously resided under judgment shall receive mercy. And they shall make returns upon this love. God will reach out in love and His people will answer back, You are my God. Jeremiah Burroughs noted this, It is the highest happiness of the saints that God is their God. They can say, then they have enough. If we could say, this house is mine, this street, this lordship, this city, this kingdom, or this world, what is all this? He goes on, the Christian can say that God that made all is mine. Very quickly before we we close, just a few minutes. I want to look at Jeremiah 31 very briefly. I said we'd come back to it. So in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and following, we read this. This is Jeremiah's take on what we just read and what we just ha- or what's just happened. He says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand out to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, each saying, Brother, know the Lord. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive the iniquity their sins, and I will remember their sin no more. And so, when does this happen? Because we've been talking this whole time about Israel. And remember, this was like 700 years before Jesus even came. Is it, it was future to them. Is it still future to us? What does it have to do with us? He's talking to Jews. We're Gentiles. Well, we could spend way too long answering that question, so just permit me for time to point you in the direction of the book of Hebrews, specifically chapters 8 through 10. Jeremiah 31 is quoted twice in Hebrews 8 through 10, once in 8, 8 through 12, and again in 10, 16, and 17. And the point of these quotations is to say that this new covenant is inaugurated in the death of Christ. And is therefore in the death of Christ that this marriage is confirmed. Now while we may say it is not fully enjoyed in all its glory until we reach the eschaton, forever we will enjoy it. Now we begin to enjoy it and the binding and eternal nature of it is guaranteed in the death of Christ, who once for all made a single offering for sin, thus perfecting for all time those who are being sanctified. The groom, Jesus, lays down his life and ransoms his bride for himself. The church, like Gomer, Hosea's wife, who had gone astray and fallen into sex slavery, is rescued The Gomer, Gomer is rescued by Hosea. The church rescued by Christ. And Hosea, who buys his bride back with his own money, like Jesus, who buys his bride back with his own life. So in closing, the great king and his adulterous wife, she had made a wreck of her life he had given her over to her lovers, her enemies. She had destroyed, they had destroyed every aspect of her life. She had been left for dead, bruised, broken, and bleeding. But this, thank God, is not the last word. For the king once again has compassion on her. He has brought her to nothing. And so his wrath has been satisfied. His heart has grown warm with love once again. He remembered the covenant He made with her in the day of her youth when they were married. And though she's broken and shattered it, He will make a new one with her. One that cannot be broken. It is an everlasting covenant. She will return to her husband and live with Him forever. And so if you're in here this morning, And you don't know the Lord. 
but instead you suppress the truth about God and unrighteousness, I beg you, repent. Turn from your sins. Turn from your lovers and find rest in the arms of the true lover. Idolatry is likened to adultery. It is spiritual adultery. You have been created by God for God, but you spurn His love and run into the arms of abusive lovers. So will you hear the voice of God this morning calling to you and return to Him? Maybe you're in here and while others of you, you would say that you're Christians and you can but you confess that you've not been communing with God in love through this marriage of Christ and the church. You confess that while you truly love God, you find yourself so easily and readily enticed and attracted by idols and other beloveds. You feel at times half committed to Jesus. Lukewarm even. Well, I encourage you brothers, sisters, Christ died for you. He has paid for your sins and the promise that He made to Israel, He makes to you. He promises to remove the names of your false gods from your mouth, to give you peace, to make you lie down in safety and to be your husband forever. John Owen says in this regard, in this fight for our affection for God. He says, Frequently think of Christ by faith, comparing Him with other beloveds, such as sin, the world, and legal righteousness. Then you will more and more prefer Him above all, and you will count them all as rubbish in comparison to Him. And so, lastly, we have two options before us. You can spend your lives attempting to squeeze infinite joy out of things that aren't infinite. You can spend the rest of your lives attempting to squeeze infinite joy out of family, out of friends, out of sex, out of alcohol, out of health, out of wealth, out of different styles, your preferred style of parenting, out of presidents and supreme courts, out of lawmakers, out of culture. You can squeeze it out of, you can try to squeeze it out of movies and books, of food and clothing, out of travel and sightseeing, out of vacation, out of vocation, out of anything else in the universe that you can name. And you know what? Every time you will come up dry and empty, clutching at nothing but air. The other night we were giving, giving Silas a bath and Jesse was pouring water on him from a cup. And as she poured, he would reach up and he was trying to grab the stream of water. And as you know how water works, he couldn't do it. None of us can. It can't be done. And that image is burned into my mind as what it means to seek for eternal pleasure in temporal things. It's like grasping for a stream or grasping the wind. And so, I invite us all, make 
your choice. Will you strive after the wind and water and seek the attention of other lovers so that can never satisfy you and will only enslave you deeper and deeper in your sin and will take you to hell forever? Or will you seek for infinity in the only infinite One who has married you? If you are in Christ, He has promised never to leave you or forsake you. May God help us all to find ourselves caught up in this marriage for the ages. Let me pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Jesus Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. And I pray, O God, that You would take Your truth, plant it deep within us, And that You would cause us to leave other beloveds behind and pursue You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.